Good morning, once again. So good to be here with you today. Again, my name is Dion. I want to welcome those of you who are in the room, those of you who are joining us online too. As we look into our future, as we ask God what he has next for us, and today as we talk about the next generation and how that all plays into it. Now, when I became a parent, uh, I knew at that moment, uh, the moment it happened, that my whole life had changed. And luckily it happened when I was pretty young. I was only 26, so there wasn't a whole lot to have to change yet. Um, but I knew everything was going to change for me. The first time I held Ellie, our daughter, in my, in my arms, um, I, I knew that my whole life was going to be different. For starters, I knew that there was no way I could return this kid um, if it didn't work out. You know, I, I, had, to, I had to keep her forever. Um, I knew that would be the case. Um, I, I, I soon discovered that kids are a ton of work. And I discovered that my sleep would never be the same. You know, once you have a kid, you never sleep like you did before you had a kid. It just changes you forever. But most of all, when I first held our, our firstborn in my, in my arms, um, it totally shattered any illusions I might have had up to that point that life was about me, that it might someday be about me. Now, growing up in the church, I should have known that already, that the Bible says over and over again that life isn't about us, that it's ultimately best when it's lived for the sake of others. But it's not just others. It's life lived also for the sake of the next generation. That's a term we use around here often, but it's not a term that we've made up. It actually appears five different times in the book of Psalms alone. One of my favorites is Psalm 78. It says, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. See, it's not just about us ourselves knowing the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, but it's about telling the next generation Proverbs talks about how this even enters into our financial picture. In Proverbs, it says a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. So even with our money, it's not ultimately about us, is it? It's ultimately about those who come after us for our grandchildren, for future generations. You know, there was a time in Jesus' own ministry where he was teaching And there were all of these people who started bringing their children and babies to Jesus. And they were asking Jesus to bless their babies. And the disciples, they got kind of mad about this. They thought, you know, Jesus is way too important for this. He shouldn't be bothered with all of these people. So they tried to push the the people away. And uh, Jesus gave them a very well-known rebuke, words you've probably heard of before. Matthew 19, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So not only does Jesus invite children to come, but he actually says, hey, they're they're kind of the ideal. They're the model of what it looks like to receive the kingdom of heaven. Because how does a child come to Jesus or even into the world for that matter? They come empty-handed, needy, completely dependent on the kindness of someone else. And Jesus says, hey, that's exactly how all of you who are grown up you need to think about yourself. That's how we all come into the kingdom. They, children became the, the ideal picture, the standard of how we all have to come into the kingdom of God, empty-handed, dependent, needy on his grace. Even the first command of scripture, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden, God created everything and then he gave them a command. It says, he blessed them and said, he commanded them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So Adam and Eve's work of, of, of stewarding the earth, of taking care of the earth, it couldn't be fulfilled with just the two of them. They, they had to have godly offspring. They were to fill the earth with another generation. And together then, they would do the work of God. 
See, for me, again, when I became a parent, all this became really obvious to me that life isn't about me, that, that it has to also be about the next generation. But this isn't something that you have to be a parent to understand. This is not dependent on your life situation. In fact, I was thinking about this church and our history, um, specifically about some of the people who have had the biggest impact on the next generation in our history. And I think of all kinds of teachers in our school, even to this day, teachers who, some of them have families of their own, children of their own, some of them do not. And yet they're people who have oriented their whole life to serving the next generation. And they're doing an incredible job of that. You know, I thought about our history and people that some of you might know, people like Michelle Thompson, who was a pioneer in, in uh, our modern children's ministry, our next generation ministry. And uh, I think about Pete Mueller, who had such a, such, a, such a calling for youth. And I think today about Pua Kaufman and John Shepard and Chris Toomey, people who don't have kids of their own, yet who are invested in the next generation. See, this is not just about a phase of life. This is a truth that comes out of the heart of God that the next generation must be a priority for us. And for those who don't accept this truth, for churches or nations or whatever people group who don't accept this truth, it's ultimately very bad news. Now, uh, let me explain. I'm all for honoring my elders. I think the Bible has something to say about that. And I'm all for appreciating the contributions of previous generations. I think that's so important for us to do. And again, the Bible has something to say about all that. But let me just caution us that when the balance gets tilted in the wrong direction, when we become focused on the needs of the older generation over the younger generation, then that spells disaster for everyone. And if you don't believe me, you don't have to look any further than the case study of the nation of Japan. Now, uh, Japan, you know, a huge economic power, um, has been a rival to us in many ways in terms of economic strength. A tiny island nation of, I think, 128 million people, so a lot of people in a small place. And yet, Japan has kind of been known, I think, more than any other place that I can think of, any other nation I can think of, as a nation that consistently has honored the older over the younger and has put the needs of the older over the younger. Even in Japanese religion, uh, you know, the, the ancient religion of Japan is ancestor worship, right? So the young are charged with taking care of not just the elderly when they live, but even after they're gone and making offerings and appeasing their ancestors. And so it's a total reversal of, of how many of us might live, but, um, but the needs of the older constantly are put over the needs of the younger in Japan. Now, for some of you, that may sound nice. You may think, well, good, some appreciation at last. And, and uh, you know, people revering and honoring and respecting older generations. And certainly there's, there's something good about that. But when the balance gets shifted and the needs of the older are put above the younger, it spells disaster. If you don't know this, Japan, if they don't change their ways, they're headed toward a national and economic disaster. Let me just show you. 45% of workers, 24 years and under, held irregular Jobs. Those are jobs that are kind of part-time, temp jobs, jobs without benefits, jobs without permanence. 45% of people in this age group had these irregular jobs because in Japan, older workers don't want to make room for younger workers in their economy. Now, this number is a startling number, but I just want you to know this is two and a half times higher than it was in 1988. 
So something's happening in Japan. Two and a half times more workers are, uh, of this younger generation are currently working irregular jobs. Now, you may be thinking, so what's the big deal? I mean, it's not fair for young people to take older people's jobs, and, and maybe you have a point. But this has caused um, significant challenges to Japan on the innovation front. Japan has been in at least a decade long, maybe two decades long, innovation stagnation. I'll show you again. In 2009, Japan had 19 IPOs, initial public offerings of stock for new companies, versus 66 in the U.S. in that same year. Now, Japan, this is the home of Sony and Nintendo and all kinds of innovation, right? Not so much anymore. Something's going on there. Now, as younger people are getting disenfranchised in Japan, it's taking a lot of different uh, tolls on, on different parts of their economy. For instance, half of workers below age 35 fail to make their legally mandated pension payments. In our, in our terms, they'd be opting out of Social Security. They're just not paying it because they don't believe it will be there for them. They don't believe it represents their interests. So they're opting out. Half of workers below age 35. Now, just do the math and just imagine what that will do to those who are depending on these payments to take care of the elderly. It's, it's, it's an, absolute, uh, an absolute nightmare. But that's not the only place where workers are becoming and young people are becoming disillusioned. They're also becoming disillusioned in the area of relationships, in marriage, and in family. 61% of unmarried men and 49% of women, again, age 18 through 34 in that younger generation, were not in any kind of romantic relationship. So they're not married, but they're not even pursuing any kind of romantic relationship. Now, there's been a lot written about this, about how young people in Japan, they see no future for themselves, so they're not dating, they're not marrying, they're not even having children. Women in their early 20s right now in Japan have a 40% chance of remaining childless. Women in their 20s have a 40% chance of remaining childless. A nation can't survive when women of that number of, of women stop having babies. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. But this is an epidemic in Japan. In fact, there are some people um, in another service this weekend who said, we just came from Japan and this is exactly what we saw and what we heard from everyone we talked to. The bottom line of this is by 2060, some estimates say by 2055, Japan's population will shrink by a third and the elderly will make up 40% of that remaining population. In other words, this is not a way for a nation to prosper. Now, I know there are lots of different factors that go into all of this, and some of you may be rightly asking questions about correlation and causation and chicken and eggs and all of that stuff, but here's what I can say unequivocally. That when a society becomes top-down generationally, and when all of the emphasis is put on a, a, an older generation or the older generations rather than the younger generations, then the younger generations will become discouraged and the society will not survive. And I think the same can be said of churches. If you want to know why churches in Europe are empty, or even churches in America are empty, I think part of it is that we've given up on our mission. We've stopped preaching the gospel. I think it's a huge part of it. But another part of it is that we have failed to prioritize the needs of the next generation. We have put the needs of our generation or older generations over the younger generations. And anytime we do that, it spells disaster. Now, enough of, of my speculation, because that's all just me speculating, right? Let's talk about the thing that we can actually trust in. 
Let's go to God's truth, God's word. Let's go to the scriptures. Today we're going to look at a pivotal moment in Israel's history. Um, It's a moment where Israel wasn't even fully a nation yet. They had been rescued from slavery. They had been brought out into the wilderness where they lived for 40 years. And now they're at this crucial moment in their history where they are about to go and move into the promised land. And Moses, their leader, he's not able to go with them. So he's sending them into the promised land where they will rightly become a nation with borders, with territory like every other nation. And uh, before Moses sends them, he, he gives them a great farewell speech and he reminds them of all of the truths that they have learned in their history. And all of this is recorded in the book of Deuteronomy and we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're actually going to start at verse 1, not verse 4. We're going to start at verse 1 today. Deuteronomy 6. And I want to tell you that just for context, right before these words... Moses had just given them, repeated to them, the Ten Commandments, the entirety of the moral law, or I should say the summation of the moral law, in Deuteronomy 5, and then he says this. He says, these are the commands, right? Just told them the Ten Commandments. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you are getting ready to cross into the Jordan, cross over the Jordan, rather, to possess. And and, and, (laughs) this is so important. So that you your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. So Moses is giving them this really important instruction, but do you know where he goes right away? Notice he says, hey, this isn't just about you holding on to these truths and obeying these teachings, but you've got to do this for the next generation, for your children and your children's children, if it is to go well with you. If you are to increase in the land, it can't just be about you. You've got to pass this on to the next generation. Now, interestingly, as Moses is saying that, He's kind of speaking to the next generation. Some of you know this, that, that the, the parents of the generation that he's talking to, they, they rebelled against God in the wilderness, and God decreed that they would not be able to go into the promised land, that they would be excluded. And so they wandered for 40 years waiting for that other generation to die off. And here is this new generation, this generation who was the chosen generation, a special generation, the greatest generation before that was ever a thing. Here they were, and um, they were the ones who were going to be able to move into the land to finally become a nation. Their ancestors, their parents said, there's no way we can defeat the people who are living in the land. And, And this was the generation who believed that they could, and they were about to try. So for all of their lives, they had been raised to think that they were the special generation, they were the chosen generation. But notice what Moses says to them. He says, hey, this isn't just about your generation, and it can't be about your generation any longer. It's got to be about the next generation. Then he goes on. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Does anyone know what this, this scripture is called? This section of scripture actually has a name. The Shema. It's called the Shema or the Shema Yisrael. These words from Deuteronomy became a rallying cry for the Hebrew people. In fact, they still are. Jewish people in their prayer services often begin and end with the Shema. It's called the Shema because the Hebrew word for here is Shema. So Shema Yisrael or hear, O Israel. This, like I said, became a rallying cry for Israel, much like grace alone through faith alone on account of Christ alone became a rallying cry for the Reformation. 
Because this was a statement that, hey, you're about to go into the land and there will be all of these people who worship differently. But here's what you need to know, Israel, that the Lord our God, that that he is one or another way to translate this is the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. There is no other God. There's only one God and, and it's the God that we know. And so love that Lord, your God, with all your heart, your soul, and with all your strength. Very important words. Israel took these words and they internalized them greatly. But listen to what Moses says next. He says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, okay? But also impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God is, uh, through Moses, is giving the people so much instruction. But every time, do you notice, he tells them something and he says, hey, but this isn't just about you. It's not enough for you to know that the Lord your God is the only God. And to love him with all your heart and soul and strength. You've got to impress this on your children. So talk about it, he says, when you lie down and when you get up and when you walk and when you sit and and, uh, because kids don't just learn from talking but also visually through example. He says, tie them to your wrists and to your foreheads and write them on the door frames of your houses as a witness, as a testimony to these children. Sounds exhausting, doesn't it? But what's the alternative? See, Moses is trying to help them out here that the well-being of their entire nation, it all hinges not just on how faithful they are to God, but on how well they raise a generation who knows God. Now, I know some of us don't like this truth, even though it's clearly scriptural. Some of us may even have grown to resent it. And frankly, I get it. See, I love my kids, but sometimes I hate how much my life is about my kids, right? I mean, all the driving around, all the kids' activities, all of the messes they make, literal and figurative, that I have to clean up. Homework. Kids, you like homework? No, guess what? We don't either. (laughs) And we graduated. We did all of our homework already. We don't like having to help you with your homework. We do it because we love you and we want you to do well, but we don't like it either. We don't like it. Any teachers in the room? We don't like it, just so you know, in case you're confused. You know, as a parent, I hate how often I have to repeat myself over and over again. I wonder if, you know, someone had a ticker every time over the course of my life, how many times I would have to be recorded of saying, hey, go wash your hands with soap, right? And uh, don't hit your sister and all the things that you say over and over and over again. And you wonder if they're ever going to get through. It is relentless. And some of you have confided that, that frankly, again, you get a little tired of how much as a church we talk about the next generation, of how much of our our church life is about our kids and students. And I get it. But what choice do we have? Really? Not only has God commanded us to be focused on the next generation, again, I just showed you a bunch of scriptures that talk about that. But if we fail to do this, if we fail to take this seriously, it won't go well for us or for the world around us. Again, just go visit Japan. Or closer to home, just go visit most churches on a Sunday morning. Now, before you go amening too loudly, which usually isn't a problem when I preach strangely for some reason, um, sometimes there is a misapplication of this principle. 
And what happens is, especially those of us who are parents or grandparents, although it can happen to anyone, but I think parents are especially susceptible, we take these words from Moses and this teaching from God to mean something like this. Make your children the center of your universe. Worship them day and night. And put all of your hopes and dreams on their little tiny shoulders. And I just want to warn you, if that's what you're doing as a parent, if that's what you understand this to mean, then ultimately you'll end up with kids who look something like these kids. Don't remember these guys? What's the movie? Yeah, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, right? Um, These kids. This is like bad parenting 101. This is a picture of what happens when you make your kids the center of your universe. If you need a stark reminder, just take a look at this video. I want you to be the first to find a golden ticket, Daddy. I know, Angel. We're doing the best we can. I've got every girl on the bleeding staff hunting for you. All right, where is it? Why haven't they found it? Veruca, sweetheart, I'm not a magician. Give me time. I want it now. What's the matter with those twerps down there? For five days now, the entire flipping factory's been on the job. They haven't shelled a peanut in there since Monday. They've been shelling flaming chocolate bars from dawn to dusk. Make them work nights. Come along, come along, you girls. Put a jerk in it, or you'll be out your ears, every one of you. But listen to this. The first girl that finds a golden ticket gets a one-pound bonus in her pay packet. What do you think of that? Gosh, do you remember? See, that's a, that's a powerful picture of what happens when we, when we take the living God who is at the center of the universe, the one in whom we all live and move and have our being, the one who holds all things together, when we take him from his place, from his throne, and we put our little darling snookums there, right? Because no person can handle that pressure of being the center of your universe, of being your object of worship. No one's short of God. A spouse can't handle that. Don't do that to your spouse. Don't do that to your friends. Certainly don't do that to your children because the weight is just too heavy. And if you do that to the, your kids or anyone else in your life, they will eventually crumble under the weight. And the crumbling looks like either all-out rebellion they might become a sociopath. They might become a spoiled brat like in, uh, like in Willy Wonka. See, let's be clear here. Moses, God, I am not saying that we want to raise the most pandered generation on the planet. That's not what this is. And please don't do that to your kids. But what we are going to do is, is we're going we're gonna to prioritize the next generation over the next two years. And long beyond, but uh, specifically in the next two years. Because we feel like it's our calling not just to raise the next generation of church goers, the next generation of Christians, but we believe we have a calling from God to mobilize the next generation of world changers. And so that's what we'll seek to do over the next two years. First, we will raise a generation that knows who God is. See, if you uh, go to our children's ministry, you saw some in the video today, or our student ministry, you'll see them have a lot of fun, and we make it fun because we don't think that church should be boring. We don't think that God's love is boring, so we make it fun. But the genius of that is that while they're having fun, kids learn a ton about God and about the scriptures. But I just want to be clear about what our intention is. Our intention is not just to raise kids who know their Bibles well. And it's not just to raise kids who've memorized Bible verses or who know all the dates and places and times. The purpose of the scriptures is that you might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. That's what it says. 
And so we want to help kids know the one whom the scriptures reveal. And so over the next two years, more than ever, we're going to make sure that we're raising a generation that knows who God is, that he's a loving father who's created everything, including them, with intentionality and purpose. That he is a savior, Jesus, who came to earth to find them and rescue them from sin and death, that they might be his own and live under him in all of his blessing and all of his goodness. That God is a spirit who dwells with them and counsels them and teaches them and instructs them and keeps them in the faith until Jesus returns. We will raise a generation that knows the living God personally and intimately. Second, we will raise a generation that knows who they are in him. See, we're raising a generation that knows that their baptism is the most important thing that has ever happened to them. Because in their baptism, they were made sons and daughters of the most high God. And God made promises that he will never revoke, that he will never change. We're raising a generation that will understand that. That will take greater stock in that identity, that they are a son that they are a daughter of the Most High God, that they will put more stock in that than if they're pretty or strong or fast or smart or athletic or popular or wealthy or anything else. That, that above all, and those things are great, but above all, that they will know that their, core, their foundation of who they are, their foundation for their life is who they are in Christ. What he's done for them, that that makes all of the difference in the world. Third, we will help the next generation understand their true purpose. And their true purpose isn't to grow up one day to fill pews, to be Christian. That's not it, not alone. See, their true purpose is to be a light in this very dark world. Their true purpose is to use all of the things that God has poured into them, and we're going to help them discover that, all the things that God has poured into them, the strengths, the gifts, the talents that only they have, to use those things for the good of others, for God's glory in the world. We're going to teach the next generation what their true purpose is, that they really can be world changers. And I just want to tell you, as a a parent, this should scare you a little bit. Because when your high school daughter comes home, and uh, instead of going to the, 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 you know, lofty educational institution, the college, the university that she had always dreamed about going so she can get a high-paying job, she says to you that she wants to take a detour and she wants to serve people and she wants to enter into ministry, like just happened to one of our uh, high school families here. Man, that'll rock you a little bit, won't it? That'll shake you and make you wonder, like, what do I really value for my kids? That they would be well-educated and rich and influential, or that they would know their core purpose and calling, that they would know God who they are in him and they would do something about it in the world. That's tough. Or when your son comes home and he starts talking about how he's going to tackle some of the world's greatest problems, and you're thinking, oh, junior, you know, someday you're going to grow up and realize you can't do that. That there are just some problems that are too big for us to solve and we've been working on these things forever and we've not been able to fix them and there are just some forces of evil that are just too strong that good can't overwhelm them. You'll be tempted to pop his bubble, right? Keep him from getting his spirit crushed by that mean, mean world out there. But in that moment, I just want to remind you that a generation of people who were raised out in the wilderness with no permanent homes, they were nomads living in tents, with no 
you know, prep schools, no college prep centers, no ACT testing programs, no elite colleges, no travel soccer leagues. Oh my goodness, how do you raise kids without club sports, right? That a generation with nothing was raised to be the generation who did what their parents couldn't do, what their parents feared to do. They went into a land that was filled with people, godless people, wicked people. They cleared it out and they established a nation who would live for God and where God's love could flow to all nations. See, as a parent, this sometimes just rocks what we, we, we dream about for our kids. And yet, as a church, we're going to be unapologetic about doing this. We're going to continue to teach kids about their calling to live as light. We're going to keep taking our high schoolers on mission trips, and we're going to continue to pay for a portion of those. Because on the mission field, that's where you start to learn about God's calling, what he's put into you. You discover more about yourself and God than you ever will in a classroom. We're going to make sure that families get a chance to serve together more than ever in the next two years, because that's how you discover purpose. And then we're not going to stop there. We're not just going to do that for for the families that are here in our church. We will make sure that our community knows we value the next generation. Steve Howard's been saying for years that people in this community will do anything for their kids. And that's true. But we as a church, we want to make sure that they do the best things for their kids. See, they're willing to do anything, but there are some things that are more needful than others, and we want to help them do the right things, the best things for their kids. But in order to do that, they've got to know that we value their kids, that we love their kids, that we will honor their kids, that we will nurture and care for their kids as much as they do. Now, I think we do that pretty well, frankly. I, I'm so proud of what we do for the next generation here. Um, but our work is often hidden. And there are some places that, uh, that, you know, that we can do a lot better. For instance, if you come onto this campus on a weekend, it's kind of hard to know where the next generation stuff even is. And we need to do better with that. Um, specifically, when you stand in our commons, there is, there is this glaring white hallway that looks like it might be the hallway that leads to I don't know, the brooms and the mops or maybe even the trash incinerator. But that's actually the doorway to children's ministry. That's, that, in fact, that hallway is where we keep our babies. Uh, but no one would ever know that just by looking at it. They would not even know that, that we had children here, that we care about children. And so we're going to do better. And as a part of Next, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to improve that so that when you walk into our commons, and our commons is going to be this, this place of life where people gather, where people are connecting with each other, you will see this, this doorway to children's ministry that makes you say, they love kids here. They value kids here. This is a place where my kid is going to be safe, where they're going to grow. We're going we're to improve that. We're going to make sure that kids are safe with a, a secure double hallway, with a single check-in point and check-out point so parents know that their kids are safe. Why? Because it's not until our community understands that we value the next generation as much as they do, that they will let us help them not do anything for their kids, not raise the next generation of Veruca Salt and her, her friends, but to raise a generation who will change the world. See, none of us are sitting here today because we, we did this all ourselves, because we followed God obediently, we worked hard, we you know, taught ourselves the scriptures, we, you know, we figured this all out. No, no one can say that who's sitting here today. The reality is that if you're here today and you call yourself a Christian, 
if you're in a life-giving relationship with Jesus, the reality is that generations ago, God saw you before you ever were. And he put, in a place, he put into place a plan that would spell your rescue in your life, in your freedom, in your wholeness, in your hope. He sent his son into the world, not just for that generation in which Jesus lived, but for our generation. Jesus' death and resurrection, it means something for us here today. And God in his foresight saw our generations all of these years later and he did something for us in time that would, that would, that would have an impact on us. But then God did something else for every one of us in this room. At some point in our life, he sent someone else into our lives. And maybe that was a, uh, a friend or a spouse. But I think for most of us, it was someone from an older generation. Someone from an older generation who understood this truth of Deuteronomy, who understood God's proper order. They, they began to pour into us. They invested in us at their own expense they poured into us. They invested in us. And that investment has forever changed us. Am I right? See, now it's time for us to pay this forward to another generation. To help them grow to know who God is in a personal way. To help them know who they are in him, to understand their true purpose, to help our whole community understand that. And I believe if we do this well, if we do this right, we will raise up a generation who can fix problems that we feel hopeless about, that we feel powerless over. They can do it just like the Israelites raised a generation who could go into the land and claim it for God. We can raise a generation who can change the world who can bring more of God's kingdom to earth than presently exists now. Can you think of anything more worthy to give yourself over to than that? If you can, then you're excluded from this. But if you can't, like me, I want you to lean in. Right now, you can take a picture of this on your phone. These are your prompts, your leaning in prayer prompts for the week. We did this last week. Each week, I'm going to challenge you to do this. You can take your phone. You can snap a picture, um, put a reminder in your calendar, at some point, or write it down on paper if, if you use paper for that. Uh, make yourself a reminder, Monday morning before I go to work, Wednesday night before I go to bed, um, you know, Tuesday at lunch, I'm going to intentionally lean in, and I'm going to pray to God about these things. First, for others, that our kids and students would know God and his teachings intimately, personally. Pray for that. Secondly, for our church, that we would be wise and bold in how we mobilize the next generation of world changers. See, we can do this well or we can do this poorly. Um, but if you pray for wisdom, God will help us do it well. This is his heart. He wants us to win in this area. And then lastly, to pray for yourself. That, that God would open up your eyes, that God would teach you and show you how you can personally invest yourself in someone from the next generation. Now, if you've got kids in your home, I'm going to challenge you that this may be beyond the kids in your home. This may be the neighbor kid who's got no one pouring into him or her. This may be getting involved with some of our volunteer opportunities to serve students or kids every weekend. I'm going to challenge you to just to pray and ask God. Ask God to fill it in. He'll, he'll tell you. But ask God to, how, he, how you can personally invest yourself in someone from the next generation. So take a picture, write it down, pray about it this week. Lean into this. Because if we're not willing to lean into this, again, I keep saying this, what are we doing here? 
If we're not leaning into this, if we're not serious about raising a next generation who knows the love of God, who know who they are in him, who understand their purpose, then all of this will dissolve. It will crumble in a matter of years. Within your lifetime, you will see the end of all of this. So lean in. Because here's what I believe. I believe, man, I believe it is no insult to us in this room. It is not to our shame if we so successfully invest in and raise a generation who then solves problems that we couldn't solve, that we thought were unsolvable. It is no insult to us, it is not to our shame, if we raise up a generation who can overcome evil with good, things that we thought were just too evil to be defeated. In fact, that is to our credit and that is to the honor of God. 